History session 124. I almost got in a complete unit yesterday, but uh, time didn't permit. So um, if we can try to put ourselves, you know, talk about all the various things that move together, about the complex world, the spectrum. It's not a, it's not a movement or a unified world, but the spectrum that's referred to as Dati Me, modern orthodox with a focus on Eretz Israel. We touched a little bit on some of the other countries. Um, the... Uh, we, we were talking about um, the, the sense of, I quoted Berkowitz as saying, the inadequate borer, that the idea of merging the secular with the Torah might even, in theory, sound logical. Why not take the best of the other world and simply run it through Torah inspection and say, ooh, that's good, and ooh, that's treif, and, and, try, to, and try as best you can. I, you know, in, in a sense, I commented on this before, I commented on this thing before, there are places where they do teach um, secular studies. I mean, my kids in elementary school get some, what, the equivalent of science. They learn it, like the Rambam would suggest, as, as um, they call it, teva, nature, and they learn it as niflosa teva, the wonders of creation. So if you had people teaching the secular subjects who were deep yirei shemayim, uh, knowledgeable in Torah, now you're on to something. But the, I mean, in places like YU, um, not all of them, I mean, some of the places, I think in Skokie and Lander, there's an attempt to try to have from teachers teaching the secular subjects. But in, in, in YU, sometimes there's a from teacher, but that's, I think, on a rare blue moon, the, uh, there are, are explicit, open, un, unembarrassed kofri who teach many of the secular subjects, in which case, this Dr. Berkowitz, his, his thesis seems to be good that, that you know, they never did proper borer never really weeded through and, and did that selection process. So the whole thing gets merged and Torah usually lear, loses in that, on that level. Um, where the idea, we've talked about this many times, but the idea of a gadol, uh, a gadol is somebody who has an audience, has a constituency, is somebody who's listened to. I, I, I've mentioned that this world does not lack for candidates for world-class Talmudic Chachamim. Um, but they generally listen to their rabbis when it suits them, when it fits the... With, fit, this is by their own rabbis, Rav Schechter talks about this, but their own rabbis account, they listen to the rabbis when it suits their agenda, and when not, they, they go elsewhere. I commented on the irony in the recent death of Rav Lichtenstein that suddenly he was a gadol, but while he was alive, no, uh, no, no it's not a denigration of him. He was a, a huge person in Tyra, but his constituency generally ignored him. Wasn't he considered more of a radical, like a radical? Whatever he was, but in other words, you can't, just in terms of intellectual honesty, you can't call him a gadol and then say, and then, and then at the same time, you know, realize that you never really listened to him. You disregarded his actual views. If he's a gadol and he was your gadol, that means you listened to him. Bain you mean bain small. <laughs> I'm using the, I'm quoting the term where we learn this idea of a rav from Parsha Shoftim, where it says you listen to them whether he says right is left, left is right, from shot there. Here it's all the more apt because in the case of Rav Lichtenstein, he really said that right is left. And the political spectrum, he was left wing, right? So where his constituents were right wing, uh, so that would actually be a good uh, double entendre. Uh, yeah, it really, it really fits nicely. But this idea that they don't necessarily listen to their rabbis or they, or they choose their rabbis, um, a whole group of, I mean, in America at least, the, a whole group decided they didn't like the main, the main um, hashgafa that was coming out of the, 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 the rabbis of the mainstream modern orthodox institutions, YU and otherwise. So they, the board of directors, went and founded their own rabbinic school uh, that they that they have in Manhattan that they've had now for for, for a while in Manhattan it's under under the under the under the aegis of, of Avi Weiss, who's a nice guy. It's a new organization. I mean, it's a new relatively uh, new, but it's a new. Uh, it's of the board of directors by the board of directors, and if the rabbis there were to have any view in halacha that would run afoul of the board of directors, they would have to find a different job. That's the nature of that, I mean, which is not so far afield from the ideology of reforming conservative anymore. Um, so at, that's on the extreme, and it's, it's maybe more glaring and blatant, but more mainstream in Israel, I've quoted this story too, but since we're on the topic, it's relevant to, to, to include in the discussion. Um, when in 2003, it came up again, it wasn't the first time that there was a, that there was a woman religious Knesset member, but it hadn't been three years, and they asked the Mafdal, at the time that was the name of the religious party, it's changed now, but the religious party was called, the national religious party was called the Mafdal, they asked the, their official Rav, of Mordechai Eliyahu, who was re greatly revered in that world, he was a former Sephardi chief rabbi, 
but embraced very much in the modern Orthodox world and in the Dakini world in Israel. And they asked him whether a woman could run on the list for Knesset, and he poskined, consistent, we, we told the story because it was consistent with what we saw, remember a parallel story that took place by Rob Cook in the 1920s where they asked if women vote to participate in the election, just like Rav Kook Paskin, no. So Rav Eliyahu Paskin, no. No woman Knesset member. And that year they elected Gila Finkelstein to the Knesset. And remember, I told you the story? Right? So the, 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 the interview afterwards with the head of the of Nahamat, the women's, one of the women's organizations, and she said, yeah, we ask our rabbis questions. And we ask our lawyers and our engineers and so on. And at the end of the day, politicians have to listen to politicians. And we do what we have to do. And the woman was elected. So yes. they, they, there, there are, I guess, you know, like for lip service, there are, there are, there are rabbis' pictures to put on the wall, but not, not gedolim who are listened to and adhered to as such. Um, as a result, also, one sees as a spinoff of this, the general uh, reverence for Talmud Torah suffers in a, in, a, in a field where, you know, you're embracing everything. So the idea of the, the singularity that Talmud Torah requires that the obligation to be learning in every free minute, Yomam Valayla, and everything in between, uh, paraphrasing what the Gemara says, is not an ethos that's easily embraced. It doesn't mean that they lack Masmidim. There are Masmidim. There are people who are learning Yomam Valayla. But they stand out. They're the overwhelming exceptions. They're, that's not the value. They, what's valued is being unique. Excelling, let's say, in the world of, of uh, you know, they've got their Nobel Prize winners who are also Dati, and that's that's celebrated. You've accomplished something in the world, and you've maintained your Torah. But the the first statement is you've you've accomplished something in the world. When a former student of um, modern Orthodox parents, who was slated to go to Harvard, Harvard, I tell you, um, decided to come back Shana base, and then actually during Shana, and then that that sent the mother to the hospital. She was so sick. With, uh, with angst that he would go back to Shana base, and then the next year when he wanted to transfer from Harvard to YU, the chutzpah, um, she was, again, she was ill for weeks because of the travesty, because, you know, Jewish shmush, you know, and it's nice to send our kid to Israel, it's nice to get excited by the learning, but Harvard is Kodesh Kedoshim, as far as her values were concerned, and that was, uh, you know, she had no bones about saying that. So when it came down to it, Tyra took a second, took a second, um, third tertiary importance and, um, and that, that's, that's the dynamic. And yet, they're very, the, the, there's a sense of tremendous anger at the Haredi world and a, self, a, a strong sense of self-righteous indignation because they think they have a monopoly on religion. Who do they think they are where every bit is religious is the implication. I don't know. I, listen, I, you'll hear me on the Haredi, various worlds in the Haredi world. There's what to criticize. There are problems everywhere. One way I say it, I mean, when we shifted personally from being very much in the modern Orthodox world to moving to a self-identified Haredi community in Hashkafa, and I put on the black hat and the, and the jacket, that was not because the Haredim have it hands down superior over everybody. It was the, of all the flawed worlds, it was the least flawed. The best way, even though there's no perfect way of trying to find a, a system to implement Torah, to, to, to live Torah and to transmit Torah to the next generation. And uh, in the modern Orthodox world, these are, these are dynamics. And I hope I've represented it fairly. I, I, I mean, maybe this could be, you could hear this as a diatribe. I don't mean a diatribe. I'm trying to paint a, a picture. There is immense good. And uh, you'll find tremendous chesed. You'll find in the minority fringe factors, the Chardal factors, you'll find high level of Torah learning and, 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 and Shmiris Mitzvos and halachic observance, but they tend to be the exceptions, not the rule. Um, there's another dynamic that I wanted to mention too. Um, there is a, and this is all in degree, it's, don't read this in absolutes, I'm trying to convey abstract ideas. When it comes to learning, in the learning itself, there is a general, uh, in, in many parts of the modern Orthodox and Dati world, there's an unmistakable influence from the secular, from the enlightenment, from the academic. So that I remember some of, a couple of my Dati red rabbis, when I started learning, had an idea, like they, they saw it as a value to try to understand the Pasuk without being influenced by Rashi, without all those ideas of Rashi, just see the Pasuk for itself which now and later I recognize as a kind of kfira, as a kind of heresy. Because you don't understand the Pasuk without Rashi simply channeling Chazal, is channeling Torah Shabal Peh, you don't understand Torah without Torah Shabal Peh, as we've said many times. 
But this idea, and of course in my field of tour guiding, you have a very common phenomenon, an ideal of a tour guide who takes out the Tanakh on the spot. It's very fun. You go and guide Eretz Yisrael, walk in the footsteps of the Tanakh, wherever you go in the, in the land, you can find something. And they'll simply read the Tanakh as if that's the end goal, where, same point, you don't, as we argued in the beginning of this class, you don't understand the Tanakh without the Medrash, Medrash Chazal, without the Gemara, without the Gadata, without all of the, the, uh, the, the oral tradition. Um, there's a sense then that they're almost skipping over the whole Nusayra, the rabbinic tradition, not exactly like the Karaites or the Kutim or the Reform, not exactly, but that they talk about we're coming back to the land, we're like the new Yahushua, uh, and, 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 and taking the symbols from the old days of the Tanakh as if they're the new settlers, whereas you hear an emphasis much more in the Yeshivish world on what's called Yiddishkeit. Well, what is Yiddishkeit synonymous with? Yiddishkeit is the whole tradition, it's the whole Messiah, it's Judaism, right, and tradition and religious life, but very much channeled because through Yiddish, because that was the Messiah, at least for the Ashkenazi world to a large degree, that was the mainstream Messiah through all the generations. So that we're not just skipping back to the Tanakh, we're actually going from a direct link from our rabbis to their rabbis learning how to live life. That was a nuanced point. Did that make any sense, what I just said? You got that? There is, there is an unmistakable dynamic here. Um, you know, it's as if there's a cynicism towards diaspora. Oh, that's so, you know, you speak Yiddish. It's almost, a, uh, in some quarters of the, of the Dati world, there's almost a zilzul, a, a denigration of the tradition of Yiddish. Yiddish is so old world, pale, pale of settlement, um, uh, you know, throwback. We're part of a new generation. It's like they got the bug of Zionism, and they're trying to view it with a religious sensibility. It's not secular Zionism for sure, but um, but skipping over the whole tradition that got us to this point. And obviously, a major thrust, a major thesis in this class has been: we're all connected, and our Messiah is is of a flowing bit. Meaning, you know, we look back; you can't skip any of the generations. Um, where we followed that Messiah sheet from Moshe Rabbeinu down to Mar Baravashi. But in a sense, this course has been arguing that it didn't stop with Mar Baravashi. We've been tracing this since Savarayim, Gaonim, Rishonim, Achronim, and on. Um, as a conclusion of this topic, and then we're going to change gears a little bit today, the Mizrahi world and the Haredi world, then, for the last half a century, have continued to grow apart ideologically. And we've, we've um, encountered some of the um, instances, some of the, some of the events that have, have created increased tensions. There's, I don't want to say tensions, that's such a, that's such a PC, mild world. Um, there's sometimes hatred. Usually, in my experience, hatred from the Dati against the Haredi, but sometimes returned, which is usher and terrible and so, so um, tragic that that should exist in the world because of that. But, you know, what they say, there's no fight like a family fight. When you're very close, but you have these pronounced ideological differences, the um, animosity, the, this, the, the uh, problems that, that exist are, are, are strong between them. Um, we saw, if you remember, the whole struggle over the uh, archaeological excavations around the Rambam and the Rebbe Yudanossi's graves where they discarded all the bones of these, of the, many of the bones of the, of the, um, of the Kidolim, of the, of the Tzadikim, all in the interest of science. Well, if you remember, one of the people presiding over that was himself the minister of the religious affairs, was a self-identified religious figure. And, and he was in government, and he represented the government, and he was embarrassed by the Torah world's response that they had to protest this. Um, I'm going to talk about another more contemporary story that also you know, gives you a sense. You, you see this, this tension manifested in a real controversy in 1972 it had been building before then but it really broke open in 1972 there was a, um, an event or a series of um, uh, controversy referred to as the Langer Mamser controversy and I'll give you a little bit of the background there was a brother and a sister who had um, who were halakhically mamzerin um, and they had become assimilated but because marriage goes to the chief rabbinate whether that's a good thing or a bad thing is another discussion. I've told you before, I don't necessarily, under, I don't think that 
putting all the institutions under uh, religious aegis is necessarily good for the Jews. What it does is it creates a lot of resentment and people just go and get married, get a marriage license in Cyprus if they really are determined. Or they'll just live together out of wedlock. Terrific. I'm not sure we're accomplishing so much by insisting that they go through our channels, but nevertheless, that's the situation. Um, and there's advantages, obviously. At least you can supervise and encourage them to keep halacha and tayra if, if that's something they're able to do. Anyway, as Mogzerim, the Rabbanu certainly refused to have them get married, and they wanted to get married. Not with one another. I can see why in my brief version of this that that might be misunderstood. Wow, I thought that was the case. No, no, and it's so reasonable that you heard it that way, so my apologies, my, more, my poor presentation. No, they each were a product of a, an adulterous a union, therefore each of them were separately mamzerim, and each of them, understandably of young people, sought to get married with the people that, with the respective uh, partners that they had fallen in love with, and they couldn't get married to the Rabbanut. So, listen, mamzer is one of those issues that even we have to take a few minutes and understand, wow, that's really hard to understand. Well, if you start from a premise that the Torah is from a Kaddish Baruch Hu, and it all works, and there simply are parts that we don't get, fine, so we'll take the trouble to understand, okay, there's, this, there's, a, there's a real um, situation called Mamzerus that potentially means that a person cannot marry everyone that they so desire. And that runs counter to the whole popular uh, uh, ethos in love and marriage nowadays. You meet in a bar and you fall in love and you get married with whoever you should choose, be they a man, woman, dog, or otherwise. Um, right? That's the, that's the modern ethos. And, and this young man and this young woman wanted to get married, not to one another, but to somebody who they loved and they couldn't. Okay. It, they got a psak. It was issued by rabbis who would later emerge as, as much more prominent gedolim. Already in the 1970s, they were, they were leading figures, Rabbi Yashiv, Rabbi Yosef, and others, big names. Uh, they were absolutely certifiable mamzerim. It became a cause celebre, the secular mainstream, the same secular mainstream that were outraged at the kidnapping of Yosela, remember Eifo Yosela, remember that was another story along these lines, uh, rallied around this, the Langer brother, the brother and sister Langer, um, they, were, they got a lot of support, a lot, of, a lot of press, a lot of editorial ink spilled on them. Not personally. Uh, especially by Moshe Dayan, who, remember, he was not, not a friend of the religious world. He, he wrote, he wrote, he was very he was vociferous. He said, I want to remove this archaic scourge of Mamzerus. We've got to get rid of the whole concept of Mamzerus from our progressive Israeli society. It is no place in a modern democratic state. And he said, we, we have to get rid of it. There was a newly elected chief rabbi. His name was Rabbi Shlomo Goren. Uh, controversial before this, he was the one who went up in the blue the shofar on the Temple Mount and visited the Temple Mount many times after the Six Day War. So you get a sense based on our discussion yesterday of where he's holding ideologically, very much of the right, politically right wing, Mizrahi world. And um, the newly chief, newly elected chief rabbi, Rabbi Goren, uh, promised to help, and indeed. Soon after getting elected to this job, it's, it's, it's a strange situation where you elect a rabbi, but that's part of the secular Zionist state. This newly elected rabbi, it's one of his first degree, uh, decrees, he permitted brother and sister Langer to marry different people uh, within Klal Yisrael. Now, how do you do that? Like, he is a rabbi, he's got to answer to halacha. So he would illustrate what many people, his critics certainly felt, um, he would illustrate the idea that, um, Lou Greenberg said this once, where there's a rabbinic will, there's a halachic way, that in other words, he's, he, or as more eloquently phrases, the Magid of Dubno, how does he, remember, remember this idea, how did he um, always hit a bullseye in telling such perfect stories? He said, first he, threw, first he threw the arrow and afterwards he drew the bullseye. So with the same logic, so Rabbi Goren, um, first decided to please to, to, to placate his secu the secular left, the, the other constituency, he was going to permit the, the Langer brother and sister to get married to other people. Um, and then afterwards he found a way. It, without getting into too many of the details, because uh, this is a history class, I don't want to get too bogged down in the details, but effectively what had happened was he nullified the, the mother's first husband's, husband's conversion. Let's back up. Let me explain what happened. You, you figured it out? I'll, I'll, let me say it out just in case it's not clear. Right. So the mother was married, right, to a convert, to, to a convert, and then she got a divorce, but it wasn't a get. It wasn't a real divorce, and then she got remarried and had the boy and girl. 
And because the remarriage, because she didn't have a get, she was married as an Ashesis, as an adulterous woman, technically by halacha, and therefore the children of such a union are mamzerim. But if the first marriage wasn't a marriage, ooh, 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 we found a petach. We found our loophole. Uh, okay, but not because okay because it was it, the problem was he was a convert by a certifiable Beitin and the marriage was a valid marriage so better luck next time so well you can't compare with Rav Moshe I mean other people have used this too but it doesn't work here anyway that's where Rav, Rav Goran said the first conversion was was not a conversion by saying that by the way he casts aspersions on that original Beitin it's as if the Beitin wasn't valid where it was actually a very highly reputed group of Talmud Chachamim from the old world from Europe. Um, and this, what you can imagine, what how heated a controversy this was. Certain, I mean, it was already in all the newspapers. The Langer controversy, the Langer, the Langer brother and sister. And of course, you can understand it was not just the secular world. Many in the Mizrahi world backed Rabbi Gorin. And I assert to you, it has to do with the deep assimilation that exists in that world. That their values are informed more by the secular standards of the world. Mamzerus today in our progressive society can't be, and therefore there's got to be a way out of it, was where they started. And, and again, they drew their bullseye after the fact. Where the halachic world, people who care about due process and integrity and, and, and intellectually honesty, honesty, what are you talking about? There's a mamzer here. It's their provable mamzerin. You know, there are ways of getting around mamzerus. The rabbis have kulas. For example, um, people who can't, like if they're like Suffolk mamzer, like the Karaites, often the rabbis will say, will say, prove to me you're a Karaite, and if they can't establish that they really are, they say, I don't even believe you're Jewish. You don't have proper papers, let's convert you, and then that saves them. So there are legitimate ways around the problem, this not being that. This was, a, 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 really, it was a, a public, famous, fly, uh, spit in the face at anything to do with halachic process. That's what, that's what uh, I mean, I remember, I, I something else I, I asked a Shaila once, before I really knew much about Rabbi Gore, and I asked a Shaila, quoting his name about some wild leniency, and I said, I think, I, I, asked, I asked in Hebrew to a big posek, or Friedlander, and I said, Rabbi Mordechai Friedlander from, from yeah, okay. So um, he's, he's an office up the street. Anyway, um, he, I, I said, I choshev shirav goren hitiratzeh. And then the rab, without blinking, without missing a beat at all, he said, rab goren mahu lo hitir. What didn't he matir? Matir mamzeri, matir everything. You know, whatever, whatever comes to him was his, was, his, was his perspective. And I was taken aback, and then I did my research and that found out a little bit of history. Um, yeah, go ahead. Maybe I misunderstood, but... Uh, but, but, Rabbi, uh, but didn't Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, though, with... Uh, reforming conservative? Yeah. No, as I said, let me, let me spell it out then. Nothing to do with this. He said that a reforming conservative marriage, by, by, by dint of the fact that the rabbi himself is, or herself or itself is not a rabbi... Well, I don't know. I want to make sure I cover everybody. The, um, you never know. The, um, but, but, but isn't that getting rid of uh, Mamzerim in America? No, it does, it does, but it's legitimate is my point because if the marriage is not a marriage, then the second marriage is not a problem. It's not adulterous. Then the kids are not Mamzerim. The problem here is you can't get around that. The marriage was a marriage. Yes, he was. It was a legitimate. And it was you. You, you basically Rabbi Gorin's sock his head there. Legitimate. You remember the, the, the Langer case, the Langer in 1972, where, where Shlomo Gorin was elected to be chief rabbinate, and, and he, the Mamzerim of 1972, and he permitted this young man and young woman to marry in, within Klal Yisrael. And um, I mean, in response to this, Revelyoshev, that was the Revelyoshev was um, had a position. Uh, an official government position, and he resigned it in 1972, and he never had anything to do with politics or anything, anything official from that time on. The Langer case were, uh, was a case where these people were certifiable mamzerim, as paskin by Revelyoshev, Rabbi Yosef, and many others. They, um, sure, their mother had gotten married. Their first marriage was to a convert. It was a legitimate marriage, and then, um, and then they got divorced. But it was not, she did, she's not going to get. She got remarried, had the boy and the girl. It was well documented, no mistake. They got married, they got married the same time. Was that? They got married, they got the same time. It was a, it was a, it was a, a shish. It was a the second time around. So they came from Amzeri. No suffering. Oh, no, so it was a shish. Yeah, I'm sorry. Right, a shish. That was it. And, um, what was the basis for all the contact? He said the first husband's gerus was null and void, which it wasn't. It's a shaman. What happened to him? Well, was he, was he shown this? Yeah. 
first yeah, 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 the first husband was fine. The first, oh, oh, oh I, I left out. This is a whole part of the story. He came back. He was outraged. What are you talking about? I'm, I'm not a Jew? I'm not a Jew. I'm his old man. But he, he, was, he was floored by that. He said, they're telling me I'm not a Jew? Just in order to... That gear came back and said, wow, I'm not a Jew just because of convenience. You want to make sure this boy and girl who I have no relationship to, but this boy won't get married, so you're, you're telling me I'm not a Jew anymore. Yes, what happened? Yes, what happened? Here's, here's, here's what happened. So again, he was newly reelected. He's ingratiating himself. I'm using this as an illustration of the conflict between Mizrahi and, and Haredi, but the, the, the extent that some in the Mizrahi world, Sulmogorda in this case, would go to ingratiate himself to the secular establishment, you know, we're not going to have Mamzerus in our progressive society, Ad Kedekach. I think this is a symbol. I, I can't believe that it does. It does. He, he came up with it. But it was, it was again, it was, I, I quoted the Magid of Dubno. It was, he threw the arrow and then drew the bullseye around it afterwards. It was Shvach. It was Shvach. It was. It was you don't. You don't. But when you have a certifiable, clear, unambiguous case, you do. As Blue Greenberg said, where there's a rabbinic will, there's a halachic way. And she was articulating, that's an ideology. That's what, that's what the, they go about. She, she later denied that she really meant that or said that. Yeah. Um, and the side side tells a story, yeah. You're being recorded, you might as well get it. Too late, you're, you're already stuck. So go ahead, Rabbi Pindus tells the story. I believe, but if it'll be taped, I didn't realize I'd be telling it over. This is Rabbi Pittam. No, no. His address is? So, um, it was a nice with somebody in our Samach that, um, that the, there was also a, a question of Mamzerus over there. In other words, there was a, a, a marriage originally, and then they never got a get, and then she, uh, she had a child. And that child was a student in our Samach, and he was holding by getting married. And uh, when I got realized, you know, like, oh, we got a problem, and then Ramosha Feinstein was still alive. For whatever reason, unknown to me at least, Moshe said, find out if this woman ever, you know, saw a psychiatrist or any other mental issues. Mm. So they, uh, so this boy, like, you know, jumped on that opportunity and he called up his mom and said, Mom, did you ever, you know, around that time when you first got married, were you ever going through any psychological issues? So I'll tell you the truth is, I was, I was seeing a therapist or a psychologist, whatever it was, and I was on medication. And is there, is that psychologist still alive? So they contacted the psychologist who was in a senior citizen home. 10 o'clock back a lot of years now. And he said, you know, I can't get any information because my mom gives permission, full permission to release of all, you know, whatever it was. And it seems like the woman was... Vitor Sodi, waiver of confidentiality. Right? Yeah. And even the woman was manic depressive or whatever it was, she was, the motion asking that she was not, she was not psychologically stable through the cop of the Kedushi. Ah, so the second marriage wasn't even a marriage. The first marriage wasn't first a marriage. First was a marriage, a first marriage, and they saved the Monsieur. Right. That's nice because I was using this. I said there are often, right before you walked in, there are ways of getting around Monsieurs. There was no one. And you had Rav Eliyoshev and Rav Avad Yosef, an all reputable list. I have no idea around all the famous shakas. What was that? What else? What else? I can't. I don't know how. I'm technologically backwards. You'll tell us another time. And really, that was my way of trying to get it out of you on tape, anyway. But okay. The uh, okay. What's the upshot? What's the upshot of this uh, of this story? It, the sack drew absolute opposition from virtually everybody. I mean, just so you realize. What a, I mean, again, this was a cause celebrity in the secular press. They were celebrating when the chief rabbi went their direction. Rav Shach, the stipler Gaon, Rav Shmuel Vazner, Zatzal, just recently departed. Um, even, you have to realize, Rav Shlomo Zalman Orbach, we're going to meet him today, you know, who rarely took a political stand, he got into the fray, right, which is, which is extraordinary. And um, they saw this as a flagrantly political attempt by Mizrahi figures. To you know, to to to, to uh, ingratiate themselves with the secular, they listen. Rabbi just listen to the upshot. They all signed a letter that Rabbi Shlomo Gorin, his peace halacha, not this psak halacha, but all his peace halacha from this point on were null and void. And null and void. Yeah, null and void. Yeah, not 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 to be taken seriously. That's a strong statement, and that's rarely taken. But in some cases, certain cases, you need to do that. Um, did, did people listen to her? What's that? Did people listen to the, 
Well, again, you choose your you choose your yeah, side. Yeah. Unfortunately, I'm using this to illustrate that the the worlds have become there's a dichotomy. There's the the, the worlds have become much more um, polarized. That's the word I'm looking for. They're more polarized. You're on this side. You're on that side of the equation. Tragically and very unfortunately, and you know, for most people, and this is true in the Dati world, and it's true in the Haredi world. Most people are ignorant. They don't really understand the nuances. They don't understand a lot of these issues. Uh, the best we can, we're trying to bring out. Um, in the end, the, the chief rabbinate said later on that the first husband's gear was kosher. But they maintained that the mamzerim sometimes were not mamzerim. So, so that was another contradiction that just, go figure, as we said, Revelation resigned his position and never returned to public office in, 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 in realizing you can't touch these people, you can't have anything to do with the uh, public figures. Um, we mentioned some gedolim. We've met a few of the gedolim that have characterized the last uh, the last period of time. For for today, I'm going to tell you some fantastic stories and give you uh, give you a sense of uh, many of the different personalities. I'm going to talk about a lot of different personalities. Maybe that means I've overlooked and I've left important people off this list. My apologies. It's an imperfect list. Maybe some people on the list really are not at the level of others. Meaning, I don't mean that all of these are on an equal footing. In halachic terms, certainly, but in other areas as well, I'm not the one who makes this. But I'm not. I, I am trying to paint a picture. Um, I, 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 I'm not the one who necessarily determines who who are the most leading, the most prominent uh, people in the, in the uh, of the generation. Um, these, the following, really deserve uh, understanding and, and appreciation. Um, the first name I'm going to talk about is Rabbi Yisrael Abu Chatzera, um, but he's not really known to most by that full name. He's more familiar to you as the. No? Anybody? Rabbi Yisrael Abu Chatzera? Oh, Baba Sali. Thank you. Um, Baba Sali literally means praying father. Um, he, 1890 to 1984, was a Kabbalist from Morocco, from a very prestigious mystic family of mystics. Like his ancestors, his, the uh, progenitor of the family was of Shmuel Abu Chatzera, who actually once upon a time learned with Rav Chaim Vital, who remember this, the great student of the Arizal, uh, Rav Chaim Vital, he was described as Shmuel Abu Chatzera, the ancestor was described by the Chidah as Ish Elohim Kadosh, a holy man of God. I like the Chidah, remember the Chidah we talked about this morning? Yeah, the same Chidah. Uh, that's a nice, you know, I guess on the um, advertisements, like the movie pay posters, they say, the Chidah says he was a holy man of God. Put that in your resume? <clears throat> anyway, they didn't have resumes once upon a time. The, um, the Baba Sali, when he was 12 years old, secretly uh, did all kinds of uh, acts of, of, of tzivkus, of righteousness. He fasted during the Shovavim from the, the, the Parshios Shmos to Mishpatim, we call Shovavim. When he was 13, he uh, joined his family's yeshiva. He studied Kabbalah um, during Tikkun Chatzos, during the night. Um, he grew up a very, very holy man, 1950, already at the age of 60, he made Aliyah. And together with many Jews from the Muslim-ruled lands, North Africa, the Maghreb, so Moroccan Jews came and he joined them in 1950. He came, eventually he settled in Nitivot, and if you, Nitivot is not far from the Gaza Strip, I'm trying to picture geographically, um, but he didn't want to go there, because he wasn't convinced at first it was, it was part of Eretz Israel proper. And only when he researched the issue exhaustively and he concluded that it really was, it was within the borders of Eretz Israel that he settled in Nitivot. Till today, Nitivot, I mean, I can't pass the place I see Nitivot and I picture the Baba Sali. In Israel or Eretz Israel? Uh, well, we've only referred to Eretz Israel, the halachic Eretz Israel. No, we've talked before about the issues of setting the borders exactly where it is. Uh, Gaza, Aza, very uh, arguably is not. I mean, certainly political activists like to make the claim that it is, and if you go to the museum, the Gush Katif Museum in Machane Yehuda, have you been there? Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, right, I know Ilan, Ilan mentioned he was there, so you go there, they make a case that it is Eretz Yisrael, that's a question. Not so clear in Allah, it's Machlokas. Um, in any case, he was satisfied, he settled in the Tivot. What's that? Gaza. Well, I mean, over the years it's changed back and forth. Before the Six Day War, it was also Egypt. The, um, he's known for miracles. Um, he was a mashpia. He influenced many to become Balei Tshuva. He's 
a major force in the Sephardi world, but he's a holy man revered by many, uh, Ashkenazim as well. Um, there are many dramatic tales of miracles. Uh, I'll give you one, for example, an army veteran came to him and he told him, if you'll be makabal ol mitzvos, if you take upon yourself to keep the Torah and the mitzvos, um, you'll be better. And the man was able to walk again and other such stories. Um, his family, his descendants, many of them are very well known uh, rabbis, one of whom was tragically assassinated a couple a few years ago, the holy Rabbi Lazar in Beersheva. Uh, he has another grandson, Rav David, who you should try to get a bracha from when you go to Nahariya, uh, way up north of Akko, right below, right below, uh, below Rosh Hanikra. You go up to Nahariya and get a bracha from Rav David, whose face you probably have seen, maybe you don't realize it, but he's had a lot of signs. Um, Rav David Abu Chatzera, uh, a holy man, Big Talmud Chacham, and others as well. The um, totally different track, uh, for a different figure, um, but a, approximately the same lifespan, right? So the Baba Sali was 1898 to 1984. So Rav Menachem Mendel Kasher was 1895 to 1983. Um, he was a Ger Chassid, born in Warsaw, which was the center of Ger Chassidim. Um, he was not the Ger Rebbe, but he was an immense Talmud Chacham. Remember, Ger Chassidim are among the Litvish huge Talmud Echochamim, and he represented that, uh, and his, his, his writings, uh, a classic book, book that we'll talk about in a little bit, the Tor Shlema, uh, would have a huge, he's a major posek of our generation, of, of the last generation. Um, he was not just a posek, he also was the editor of the Degelator newspaper of the Agudis Israel when he was 19 years old. He moved to Eretz Israel in 1924, so he's one of the early uh, founders of Ger Hasidus in in Yerushalayim and in Eretz Yisrael. He was one of the founders of the Sfas Emes Yeshiva. Not far from here, have you been to the Sfas Emes Yeshiva? Can you picture where it is? Um, how do I describe it to you? Um, up Malchai Yisrael. And a little bit, uh, a little bit, make a left turn going towards the Shuk. The, um, he would actually be instrumental in bringing the Imre Emes, the Ger Rebbe, to Palestine six months after the Shoah began. So Rav Kasher is a major figure within Ger, but he's a major figure for Klal Yisrael. Uh, the Torah Shlema is like this. This is how you, you read the book. On one side, you have the Torah. Okay. On the other side, um, you have um, the relevant section of Shas and Medrash as a complement. It's an invaluable source. You can see it. Remember I mentioned the Torah Tamima of Baruch Epstein, the son of the Aruch Shulchan. So there, he brings you many of the sources in Fazal that are relevant to Pesukim. Torah Shlema is um, maybe more elaborate, more, more of an extensive work. Um, he has many well-quoted arguments. I quoted him when we talked about Yom Ma'ut. Um, he had a famous machlokis with, with Moshe Feinstein about, about the Eruv in big cities. Um, Rav Moshe said uh, an Eruv in big city, an Eruv, you have to understand Eruv in one of the more complex, involved areas of Alacha, is that you can't have it in a, in a city that's a metropolis like Manhattan and elsewhere. Wait, and and Rav, Rav Moshe Feinstein was Machmir and Rav uh, Menachem Mendel Kasha was Mekil. He actually, um, he, ha he has a whole position that's Mekil. He also has a very well-quoted um, approach to solving the problem of Agunos, the Aguna. You're familiar? Aguna is a woman whose husband refuses to give her a get. And therefore, she's Aguna literally means she's an anchored, chained woman. She can't get remarried. It's a terrible tragedy. And, Rav, and, and, and the Torah Shlema has a solution, has a potential solution for the problems. Um, this is another figure to, to appreciate. I mean, we, the, the times are hard for Gdolim. We're living in anti authoritarian times. But if only the people would wake up and realize the great uh, individuals that have existed in our midst, you, you, we have such inspiring figures. Um, the, the next figure I'm going to, I'm going to discuss is from Yaakov Yisrael Kanievsky, who's, who's the father, whose son you just met last week, right? Rav Chaim's father, Rav Chaim Kanievsky's father. He's more popularly, commonly known as the Stipler Gaon, or by his sefer, the Kilis Yaakov. It's referred to as the Kilis Yaakov as well. Um, also, more or less contemporary of the Babasali and Rav Menachem Mendel Kasher. Uh, Kasher's a little younger than, than the others. Um, he was born in the Ukrainian uh, village of Hornostaple, hence the Stipler Gaon. The Hornstipler Hasidish Rebbe actually lives right around the corner from us in our Samaya there. Are you familiar with this? Some of the guys are connected to him. I think Ezra 
you know, as an, he doesn't go by Ezra. No, no, not a, no, no, no. Ezra, who's a Shana Gimel student. What is his name now? Yeah, it is Zebaron. Zebaron, thank you. Zebaron, I think, is very close to the Hornstapler yeah. Rebbe, yeah. who's Hasidic. That's, uh, That's his Rebbe. Yes, right, correct. So, so, so it's from the, they both come from the same village. Um, they, uh, in fact, the Stapler Gon had Hasidic roots in what's called Chernobyl Hasidim, and that was one of the, one of the uh, areas of Hasidic that branched out. Um, but like many Jews, kind of crossed the different worlds from Hasidic to Litvish and back. He learned in Nevardic, remember the great Musa Yeshiva, uh, when he was 19. See, I, I find that sometimes if you learn the biographies, or I'm giving you just a, 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 a brief synopsis of the life, the lifespan of the stifler, you, you can re-experience what it was to endure the last century in history. And it was not easy. At 19 years old, so that would have been he, in, in, 1918, in 1918, right after World War I, the Bolshevik Revolution, he was conscripted into the Red Army. You know, we don't always picture our Godolding ha as having real lives and struggles and torments. So he was in the army, against his will, certainly, um, under the harshest of circumstances, and um, through everything, he was makbid on mitzvos. And you have to realize that was rare. Most Jews caved in. Most Jews did not have the strength of character uh, to, to stand up to the challenges. In one particular story, while he was in the army, he was um, ordered to break Shabbos, and he refused. And um, he was court-martialed for failing to do his duty, because he wouldn't be Mahal Shabbos. And as a punishment, he was forced to walk between two rows of soldiers, who were then, as he walked by, were ordered to beat him. And you can imagine the soldiers were not kind in beating him. And he took, he took a, an immense beating. One imagines, not unlike Malkos de Arisa, uh, right, close to death. It, later in his life, he said he, that was his greatest accomplishment ever. He never equaled that achievement of Messiris Nefesh, right? We all have our moments. You don't know when they're going to come. And Chas Shalom, we should have to endure such hardship. But when the, if the time ever comes, Halavai, we should have the strength of character. Um, Years later, he wrote a book called the Shari Tuna. He wrote many great works. The Chazonish read the work Shari Tuna. <laughs> Listen to this. He, he reads the Shari Tuna. He puts it down. He says, that's the man for my sister. And he makes the Shidduch. Sight unseen. Even though it was, he, wasn't he read the book and said, he's marrying my sister. And so it was. But he wasn't married? No. They weren't married. They were, I know they, well, listen, he, had, he didn't get married as a young man because he was in the army. Right? And he wrote, he wrote this great Sefer, and the Chazanish made the Shidduch, and, um, and indeed, that the, the Chazanish's sister and, his, and the Saifel Gon, they're the parents of Rav Chaim. That's how the Shidduch was made. You should, you should have your Shidduch made that way. Um, I don't know, you're supposed to see the world too. The, uh, in one story, um, during, before the Shoah, there was a Sefer that he really wanted called the Imre Moshe. And the stipler Gaon famously throughout his life was extremely poor and he couldn't afford the book. So he approached the author of the book and asked for a discount. The author's name was Rav Moshe Sokolovsky from Brisk. And he heard that stipler Gaon wanted his, and he was already as a young, young, youngish man, he was well-known, renowned for his Torah. So Rav Moshe Sokolovsky of Brisk sent him the, the Imre Moshe for free. End of first scene. Cut, chase. It's years after the Shoah. The Imre Moshe was murdered, together with almost all of his father, followers, and there was no existing copy in the world of the Imre Moshe. And meaning not only did he go up in flames, but his legacy, his Torah went up in flames, except for the singular copy that the Stipler Gaon possessed. And when, his, when followers wanted to republish the Sefer, they couldn't find a copy, they finally tracked down, it's an, I'm, I'm abbreviating the story, it's a much better story than I'm telling, uh, but they finally tracked down the old ragged copy that the, the Stipler Gaon still possessed. And when the Stipler heard the whole story, he quoted the following Pasuk in Kohelis. He's, the Pasuk says, Throw your bread in the water because after many days you'll find it. You don't know what, what singular act of chesed, you know, the Imre Moshe sent this copy to this aspiring young Torah student, sent him a copy of his book for free, and as a result, he, has a cling, he, he clings on to eternity. Because now people can learn his book, and, um, and, and, and have, I, I don't know if you realize the import of this. You know what the Gemara says? Uh, 
Rabbi Yochanan in the Gemara Sanhedrin that I just learned earlier today teaches that when you learn somebody's based on a pasuk, when you learn somebody's Taira and they're dead, their lips move in the kever. And they get like a little check mark. And they get a check mark in the heavens. So on a certain level, because of this one isolated act of chesed, sending a copy of his book to the stifler, he now, anybody who learns his book now, he, his lips silently move in the grave. If we talk about him right now, is that... I guess so. Although less so, because we're not actually quoting his Torah. Better if you can actually quote the person's Torah. But sure, on some level it counts. It's an ilui neshama. The stifler then married the Chazunish's sister, and um, after the after the Chazanish moves to Bnei Brak in 1932, a couple years later, the Stapler follows. Um, they actually were so poor that they moved in together. And in 1947, uh, this, the Chazanish, you remember, had no children, and um, the Stapler Gon had three children: two daughters and his son Rechaim. Um, he was known, similar to his son, to unlike other Gedolim, to stay out of the limelight. He shunned publicity. His life was basically learning. Um, I mean, I say that in contrast, I don't think one is better or worse, but his contemporaries, Rav Shach, and Rav Shach, was the man. He was the out, you know, front and center Gadol who, who, who did the job. The side of was not his personality, not, not what he did. Um, he was so poor. How poor was he? He owned a pair of pants. He did own a pair of pants. But one shop is they tore. So um, it was time to give shear, and he called the students from the yeshiva to uh, hear the shear so he could save the shear from his bed, because he had no pants to wear. And uh, they assumed that he was sick. Um, he has some has famous stories about him. When they installed, initially when the electric company came to Bnei Brak to install the first electrical poles, he, um, he told them, take them down to change the shape. They were shaped like crosses. And much like we saw Rav Chaim Brisker uh, always uncross silverware when he saw them crossed, you want any reminder of the Christian cross. Um, in his classic work, the Kilis Yaakov, uh, I'm going to quote, he, he says as follows. He says, of course, there are those that without learning Torah would be wild animals and, murder, and murderers. Get the idea? When it was, Torah tames them. Without the Torah that they learned, they'd be crazy man, wild, wild animals and murderers. Continues, he says, but learning alone doesn't guarantee good midos. It's a very important point. People say, well, he learns all that Torah, shouldn't he be a tzaddik? No, not, not a guarantee. The disciple says, a person has to work on this by learning musr. You have to constantly reevaluate your spiritual state. You have to break down poor midos, your taivos, your selfish interest. If you don't work on it, it's not automatic. It's not going to come to you said the stifler going. Slightly younger than, 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 I'm going by chronological order, slightly younger than these figures was the holy Rosh Yeshiva of the Mir Yeshiva of Chaim Shmuel Levitz, 1902 to 1979. Um, today it's the largest yeshiva in Eretz Israel, about 5,000 students Mir Yeshiva. We'll talk about it later on. Second largest in the world, depending on the account student list. Um, he was originally a Rebbe in Poland in the original Mir. Um, he moved famously, they got visas originally to Vienna, then to Kobe, Japan, and then to famously to Shanghai, and eventually to Yerushalayim. And, and, and he actually was in Yerushalayim until, 19, until his tira, until he, until he passed away in 1979. He is a, his life story is, is worth looking into. There are wonderful books written about him. I encourage you to read them. Um, his maternal grandfather was the Alter Novartic. He had certainly a great pedigree. His sandat was, was Rav Yitzla Petterberger, who we learned one of the trio of great students of Rav Shal Salanter, who um, I, told you many, I told you some stories about them. Uh, he actually learned by Rav Shimon Shkop of Tel Yeshiva. He was a yasom. He was orphaned when he was 17. And he had a younger brother and two younger sisters. He took on the... Uh, he took on the um, uh, burdens of, of being the father, mother, and breadwinner of the family at the ripe old age of 17, supporting his, his brother and, and two younger sisters. And all day, indeed, he had to work to make a parnasa. His brother said, the entire night, I would see him writing Chidushe Tayyar. So, so I didn't sleep much? Nope. Sleep. 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 <laughs> um, he was known for his bi'yun, 
but also he's known for Bikius. He knew vast amounts. He would, he would, in one shear, he was known to quote as many as 20 or 30 sources from Shas at the drop of a dime. And he'd ask a question and he'd give you another 20, 30 sources. Um, the story I should really give you in the synopsis, maybe we talked about it here briefly. Um, they got visas to get out to, to escape the Nazis. And they fled, um, excuse me, to Vilna, eventually to Vienna, and then eventually to Kobe, Japan. They're the ones who remember they wrote the Shaila to the uh, Chazonish and then the and, and Rotokachinsky uh, to ask where the international date line was, because they didn't know if today was Shabbos or tomorrow was, and more significantly, they didn't know if they're gonna fast 49 hours on two days of Yom Kippur. In halacha, it's a machlokis, and we talked about it here briefly. I think you were, I think you were gone. But I also, if you're interested in the subject, I have a whole share of the subject on my on my, on my website. Uh huh. Okay. Don't know. Not familiar to me. Um. Anyway, they made it there, and they eventually came to Shanghai. They were there. Uh, all told, they were there in Shanghai about five years until 1947. Not the most likely of places for a nice Jewish boy to wind up, but they were there. Early on, while they were in Shanghai, um, he received visas to the United States for himself and his family, and he said, oh, terrific, we'll take them. Wait, where are all the other visas for my students? They're my children too, because they're all orphans. They, they don't have any family anymore. They're my, they're my children, I've adopted them. And there were no visas for the students. He said, oh, I'm not taking these visas. He stayed, he stayed till the end. With his family? Yeah, his whole family. His students were his family. As, as well as his wife and kids, too. They all stayed in Shanghai. They did start with What's that? There's a mayor in America. Oh, for sure. There is, but he didn't go. But he, he, he came to Yushalayim. I thought that I thought he did give it. To he somebody. certainly gave, yeah. Oh, oh, did he? That may be. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. But he wouldn't take it. He was the leader. Um, he said regular shirim. They said that he barely, with a couple of exceptions, missed a day of saying shir. On the boat, in transit, wherever they were, he said shir. You never stop learning Torah. Uh, he taught by example, by his words, by his practice, that a person has to have a karasatol. Whatever you do in your life, you have to be a happy person. Somebody to live that kind of... Um, life to, to, to endure the Nazi ordeal, uh, to refound the yeshiva, to rebuild from scratch. Uh, you have to have that attitude of Akara Satov, seeing the positive. He was known especially for showing Akara Satov to his wife, something that most husbands should learn from. Um, yet again, changing gears. Uh, 1910, Rav Shlomo Orbach was born. He was considered Posekador and Rosh Hashiva of Kol Taira in Yerushalayim. Um, he, ever been to Shari Chesed, near Chavia, little community in, um, in Yushalayim, it was founded shortly before his birth, and he's the first child born there. Uh, ever been to Medrash Shmuel Yeshiva, you know where that is? It's in Shari Chesed, right, right, right up the street from Shari Chesed. The, um, okay, so he's the first child born, he had Chavrusas, he learned by Ritzvi Pesach Frank, he learned by Ritzvi Zaman Meltzer, he was on close terms with Rav Chaim Ozerguzinski back in Europe and the Chazonish in Eretz Yisrael. Um, and I'm going to tell you, I, again, with all of these assessments, these are not comprehensive. This is to give you a sense of, of, of the grandeur, of the greatness of the people. He was um, an early master on the subject of modernity. Uh, his Piskei Tshuva in, uh, that we get through his own Sfarim, through the Mincha Shlomo and through other works, um, I'll talk about the Shemir Shabbos Kilchasa, uh, which is all based on all of his Piske Halacha. He was, and his, his expertise in medical Halacha, he was a posek of our times because he understood our times. And yet he, was a, he had vast knowledge of everything Shasun Post came and could apply and did apply. And um, people saw him as the predominant uh, posek of the 20th century in many ways. Um, Rav Schechter, I know, said that um, you know, people consider Rav Moshe and Rav Shlomo Zaman Orbach the poske ador for, for a whole period of time. Rav Schechter personally said he preferred Rav Shlomo Zaman's psaq. He, he enjoyed his jubes. Obviously, he went with Moshe, with Moshe as well, but, uh, but he, he favored Rav Shlomo Zaman's psaq when it came to many areas of halacha. So he was a master in the subject of electricity, which is taking over the modern world, right? And um, you can imagine for such a person, he knew it from a young age, he understood all the in and outs, all the technical um, details of electricity, how they paid the halacha. So you can imagine his reaction when the news came, the first automobile 
came to Jerusalem, and they were dri- it was driving down Yafo. Uh, I think it was in the 1930s. He was a young man, um, and he was driving down Yafo Street, and everybody ran out of the base managers to, to go see uh, what this new contraption was like. The first automobile, can you believe it? Except for Rosh Hashanah and Arbach. That even though he must have been curious, but you're learning Torah. There's nothing to cancel. Nothing, nothing to move out of the Torah from. Ooh, uh, interesting. Yeah, right. Shlomo Melech might have built the first car. We said right this in the uh, the um, the, the sack of the Benish, uh, the the parish of the Benish, the the the, 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 the Yeah, go look it up. Gemara and Gitin on on Samaches. I'm an Abba Aleph. The um and look at the look at the Ben Yehuda. He he brings that out. Uh, he was like the type of them. Removed from politics, not interested. He was a simple person, like most of our Gadolim, not interested in any material gain. Sometimes you hear about prominent rabbis who also have to be really rich. It happens. We've had it in our Gemara. It's not a psul, chas v'sholom. But it's a question, since generally speaking, the, 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 the inclination of great Torah figures is away from any material possessions. Right, but I mean... Okay, as I said, it's possible. Just you hear more often than not. You hear like the case of Rosh Hashanah, poor and proud of it. No, 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 interested in anything in Olam Hazet. Um, he was a, a beloved figure in the widest variety of Jews. I don't know if a figure exists quite like him till today. I mean, maybe, meaning that Mizrahi felt very much at home in his living room. Uh, every bit as much as Hasidim and Sfardim and Ashkenazim. The Litfish, big, beautiful smile. You've seen those wonderful pictures. That's apparently how it was. He, 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 he glowed. He glowed as his neshama shone through. Um, he um, especially, I mentioned Shmir Shabbos Kilchasa. Shmir Shabbos Kilchasa was written by Rav Neuvert, one of his students in Kol Torah. Uh, Rav Neuvert recently passed away. He was my son's Rosh Hashiva. Um, but it's reasonable to say because of the immense influence of the Shmir Shabbos Kilchasa as a book, and, and because the Piske Halacha come from Rav Shomel Zaman Orbach, that to some degree you can honestly say that Am Yisrael keeps Shabbos today uh, due to, or bischus to, due to, uh, to a large degree courtesy of Rav Shlomo Zaman Orbach. His, his, his opinions weigh in uh, significantly. Um, as we said, he has lots of other chuvas, technology, medical science. He was an expert in mitzvahs at Pliyos Ba'aretz. Uh, they're now, uh, together with the Chazonish and, and others, this is a newish topic for the Jewish people. Now we're back in the Holy Land. What about Shemitah? What about Meisers, Trumos, um, and, and, and many other issues that come up? Orla, Kilayim. He, his approach to Psak was to rely heavily on Shas, on Rishonim, Achronim, and Svara. He would often say, his way is introducing, would say, Nira, it seems to me, it's interesting, despite the, fa- the fact that his father was a very well-known Makubal, he has almost no Kabbalah influencing his psak, which is not always the case. Um, some of the famous examples of Piske Halacha, um, you're not allowed to invite a non-Jew to your house on Shabbos if you know that they're going to drive there, because it's a problem of Lifnei Iver Lotikin Mitchell. Are you familiar? How about a What? I said a Jew. I, meant, I, meant, I said a non-Jew. I meant a Jew. Excuse me. Thanks for the correction. You're not allowed to a Jew who you know if they're going to come, they're going to spend Shabbos. Okay? Rabbi Shlomo Zalman Orbach famously paskin. Um, that the uh, if you could invite them in the evening and be lenient as long as you can say while they're there and the, the doors to the middle say hey by the way if you're enjoying yourself we'd be delighted to have you stay for the entire Shabbos we have a bed fresh sheets on the beds and everything all set up for you would you like to stay even if you think that they might say no but it's possible that they could say yet yes you're not overly fnei either he says and you can invite, for the sake of Kiruv, Rehokim, you can invite them to spend Shabbos. Um, another re- related psaq, also related to Lif Iver, a lot of people rely on this till today. Um, ordinarily, you're not allowed to give a Jew food or drink if you know they're not going to say a bracha. Because you're Lif Iver. You're causing them to do an Avera. They're going to put food in their mouth or drink in their mouth without saying a bracha. Ein nani ba'olam hazeh below bracha, the Gemara in the sixth parak of uh, Brachos teaches. So Rav Shlomo Zalman Orbach said, the problem is, is if you don't give them food and drink in our day and age, with hostility towards Torah Jews, you're going to make them more antagonistic to Torah establishment. That's another leaf Iver. Better that they're over one and not the other. So he said, give them food and drink. And many people rely on this leniency. Um, he told a darshan, somebody goes around telling stories, that he could make up stories in order to be master other people the tshuva. 
Um, I would be careful in relying on this one. Be careful that the people you're, who are hearing your stories don't see through your lies. You'll undermine your credibility. Um, so in other words, you, you have who to rely upon. For Kiru. This is the Kiru. But I would say be careful, and as a tour guide, you hear, my, you hear me on my, on my soapbox, since tour guides are notorious for making stuff up because they're on the spot and they never want to say I don't know, so they always make up, they often make up answers. My argument is, isn't there enough authentic, inspiring material that you don't have to make up stories? Better to tell the good, the, the real things. If everything is amazing, then nothing's amazing. Say over what's genuinely great, and you, you're not going to have to rely on this, but if you need to, you can. Um, his practice personally, in an immense Baal Chesed, his practice personally was to always arrive 15 minutes before the chuppah started. I don't know if you know what that means in Eretz Israel. Has anybody been to a wedding in Eretz Israel? Usually it starts about five hours late. Uh, Israelis, I mean, as a culture, it's known that, that things don't start on time here, right? So he came 15 minutes early and he was born in Eretz Israel, born in Yerushalayim. Um, his point, why did he do this? Even though he most certainly was kept waiting most of the time, he was concerned about the nervous couple. Because they'd be standing there, is the rabbi here, is the rabbi here? And as a basic interpersonal ethics uh, point, he made, it, he made it his priority to be there on time, 15 minutes early, they shouldn't have to be worried. That should be the last thing the couple should have to worry about at their wedding. At least the Masada Kedushin was there. I told this story over by his, by, at his kever. Um, at one, in one instance, he was invited to be Masada Kedushin. Masada Kedushin means he presided at the wedding of a Yemenite couple. And it, it was discovered that one of the edim of the chuppah, there you ask two people the edim to, to certify the marriage is a marriage, one of the edim of the chuppah was part of the sect called Dardea, who are puzzled. They, uh, they're, they're co-framed, they deny the legitimacy of uh, the, the Kabbalah and the Arizal and many other ideas. And um, so as such, he was deemed unfit to be, uh, and, and people were talking, what do you do? And they asked Rasul Mazama, what do you do? Um, so he denied the, the authenticity of, of the Zohar. Uh, but he didn't want to offend the guy. Even a kofar, he didn't want to make him feel bad. So what was his solution? He, he, went, he, he, said, he said, yeah. He said, you know, I've never been aid of a chuppah before. Won't you please be Masada Kedushin? You take my job, I'll take yours. Because to be Masada Kedushin is fine. You can, all you have to do is make sure that, and, and everybody else was observing him there. If anything, if the Masada Kedushin did anything wrong, they could easily correct him. You know, he wasn't his, his Let's say his pedigree was not necessary for that. To be an aid chuppah, you have to be a kosher Jew. So Shlomo Zamanovic very delicately got around that without, without offending anybody. Uh, beautiful, beautiful illustration. And of course, you all know the story, and it's been told by many of us apparently on staff. Uh, when, when he was sitting on the bus and a very flagrantly immodest woman sat down next to him, rather than standing and maybe offending her by moving and switching seats, which a person really is supposed to do, supposed to get away from Pritzus, uh, right? You have to, you have to, you know, they're a chiba, you have to, you have to. Sarich Adam Lisrachik Miranashi Maod Maod says the, the first line in, in, in uh, Siman Chaf Aleph in the Eben Ezra in the Machaber. Uh, so instead of offending her and moving to a different seat, possibly offending Abbas Israel, he simply got off the bus at a stop that was not his own and waited for the next bus to come. Much more willing to endure his own personal hardship and Chas Shalom and not at anybody else's expense. Um, I don't know about you. I, I take this with me. This, you know, a gun of the Israel, I'm not, but I have to act like this myself. The idea that you're machra on yourself and make with others, that's something that's simply good midos. We should all exercise this. Um, he, um, once he was, once, excuse me, it is a true story. A woman was on the way to the, um, to the hospital to give birth. She was from Harnof, it was many years ago, and um, her husband suddenly had a massive heart attack and died. So she now gave birth in the hospital to a son. And she sent Shilas to her Shlomo Zaman Orbach. She wanted to know, could she name her son after the recently deceased father? No. I'm sure she could do it. There's a whole um, um, issue with that. Okay. Like calling the son the father's name. Without getting into the story, let me, let me, let me, let me just tell the brief story as it, as it is. It's, it's, it, there's an issue. You're right, Daniel. Uh, Rav Shlomo Zaman Orbach heard this Shaila, and rather than writing, as was, is the practice of posting, you write, you write the answer to a written Shaila, he went to the hospital to give her a personal answer. And um, he was menachem her. She was an Avelus, outing her husband. He said, name the boy for your father. Whatever halach concerns there are, those were overridden by greater concerns of, of, of uh, the emotional needs of the mother and to give her some menucha, menuchas nefesh. And so he named, named the boy after the father. Um, 
interestingly, his colleague and and and, and Mahatun, the, the Rebbe Eliyashiv said similarly. There was a, there was a woman. There was a there was an older woman in his neighborhood, Eliyashiv's neighborhood, who never had a family, never had children, <laughs> and um, even though the minhag is not to name for a living person in Ashkenazi circles, he passed, he actually named one of his children for that woman, so she should have minuchas nefesh while she was alive. Rebbe Eliyashiv did. So you have to be a post-sick Israel to realize what takes priority. Yeah. Would that son have to sit shiva because he was born after his father died? Good question. Well, what do you have to do? He's a baby. They're part of mitzvahs. I know, but still. Okay, go ahead, Barak. But, but come on, Rebbe. It's, 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 it's a cool question. It's a theoretical answer. No, it's an intellectual question rather than an Go ahead, Barak. In this case, though, is it not considered a bad moment, though? I, I thought you're not supposed to name somebody after a tragedy, having a heart attack, something similar to a tragedy. Um, oh, you're saying you maybe there's a... Her kavana was not like that. And he overrode that. There, there are other factors. These are not hard fast halachas. And not only this, listen, listen to the end of the story. Um, he told her to name the boy for the father. And then he said to her at the end, at the end of his visit, he said, um, I'm going to be his father. I'm going to take... <laughs> I'm going to be this boy's father. He'd never met this, this family before. And he, he did, he did. I mean, for, for, through his life, through his life, he um, was behind. Years later, he was involved in arranging this mother's new shidduch. She got remarried, and when she had other children, he was there at the chasnas of the boy and the other children. So he really was like a member of the family. I heard about the like got into school. I heard like yeah, he walked into school. I, it's not to be believed, and it's not like he had time in his hands. But this is who he was. Let me finish. Let me finish. While I mean, while I, and I have this, I, he, he, as an old man, was weak and frail. It was not easy for him to get around. Um, he sometimes would not go to shul for slichos in the days before the Yamim Noraim. Um, but his, he, I mean, I'm only giving a snippet. There's, you could read books on Rav Shlomo Zalman immense chesed. He never missed Beaker Cholin. He went to the hospitals and he visited the sick. That's what he did. And he did not do that ever as long as he was physically capable. And that often entailed in some of the hospitals involved climbing several flights of stairs, an old man, frail himself, climbing several sites the fails, uh, several floors to get to the sick. And when he missed Slichos, he never missed Speaker Cholin. And they asked him, but Rebbe, Slichos. And he said, no, here's why. Hashem knows that I don't have any strength. So he'll forgive me. The sick people don't. They need me to come. So I have to find the energy to come. Um, to his da- dying day, he didn't want to be a burden to his family. He said, please, if I'm infirm, when I become infirm, place me in an old age home. They didn't. Yeah, go ahead. What does it say about naming, for example, uh, two children that you have, right, the same name? There are a lot of, this is a whole sugya. I'd rather not get into it. A certain amount of our customs come from um, interesting Seemingly unprecedented traditions come from the Sefer Chassidim, the, the great Baal Tosafos, Rabbi Yehuda Chassid, uh, from the Middle Ages. Um, he's, for example, the source, the earliest source of the, of the Minhag, not to name the child, not to marry, excuse me, he's naming child now, he's the source of the Minhag, not to marry a person with the name of your parents. Right? And then so on, so on. So, so, so this is where you really need the godless of post scheme. You need the godless of post scheme to be able to, to sort through and prioritize the different, sometimes conflicting halachas to come out with a psaq. What's the best? What do we do in this case to serve Hashem best? And they mm-hmm. often come up with, with surprising conclusions based on their infinite knowledge. Now, for um, these two people, I don't know how it ends up working like this, but they're both, both their names are Adel and Levi, right? They're both in Adel and Levi. They both marry two different Esthers. Okay. And they have two kids, and one of them are both named Yehuda. So, like, it's. it's Confusing! Yes, So we don't have class. Oh, we do have class on Thursday. We do have class on Thursday. So, so, so in the next couple of days, we're changing gears significantly. The next couple of days, we are going to talk about contemporary post Six Day War Israel, its wars, and its security situation. From a Torah perspective, that can be understood. How does that work?